This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. How often do we seem to turn our thoughts in the opposite direction of the text, to the changeableness of men? How depressing and wearisome it is to the spirit that all things are corruptible, that men are changeable. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon comes at us from Soren Kierkegaard. He preached the sermon in May of 1854 in Denmark. Joel, I want to start this episode a little differently because I know some of you are listening to this and maybe you know a little bit about philosophy. And like me, when I first saw this, you're going to go, we're listening to a sermon by Kierkegaard? What gives? If you do not know, he is called the father of existentialism. Uh, Even when I googled existentialism, his was the first thing that comes up. So when doing research for this episode, we normally don't do a philosophy tangent, but we think this is important because if you are not a philosophy major, as Joel and I neither were, existentialism can get often confused with something called nihilism. Nihilism takes a bit of a, there is no point, life is no meaning to existence, and we are all kind of doomed material subjects, Nietzsche being a good description of that. Existentialism, I thought, was in the similar vein, but technically it is a little bit different, um, and there's actually several sub-brands of existentialism. There's basically a lot of talk of your free will and what you can and cannot do, and there's an an overall dread that what the actions you could or could not do could do to your life. One example is there's usually what's called an existential dread of if you're on the side of a cliff, you're both afraid of falling off the cliff, but you're also afraid of jumping off the cliff for some reason. There's just that little bit of fear of what you could do to yourself, and when you these people tend to read the Bible, because there is a group called Christian existentialists, which Soren Kierkegaard would fall into, they would say that the rec- the things that we see in the Bible are the recollection of the events that happened, but the truthfulness of it can be a little bit hard to tell what is and what is not exactly true for sure because we're seeing their memories of what happened, which is, by the way, taking away a bit of the inerrancy of God, which we at Revive Thoughts would reject that idea. So why are we having an existentialist on the show? I think... This is going to be a bit of all of us being stretched a little bit, but when you listen to this sermon and you hear the life of Soren Kierkegaard and you hear what he was going up against and what he was trying to do, I think there's something that can be learned from it. Not everything that we learn from somebody comes from the greatest. Sometimes we can learn from the failures of others and where they went wrong, and we can also still learn the truth they preach. And a great example, if you've not listened to our episodes on Alexander White, go and give them a listen because you're going to find in him a man who was doing his best at the same time in the same century trying to follow God, but he slips up a little bit in this one area. And I think you're going to see Kierkegaard kind of falls into a similar category where he's trying a lot to have his cake and eat it too. But give this episode a listen and give this sermon a listen and tell us what you think at the end of it, because you might be surprised. I was surprised by what I found in this sermon. Now, I'm also going to start this episode a little different by giving you a story. And I want you to keep the story in the back of your mind, because when we get to the end of it, we're we're going to explain it a little bit, and it'll help you understand what Kierkegaard was trying to do. And this is his story, by the way. The circus came to town, and everyone was excited. As they were preparing to go, a fire broke out. They could not handle it themselves, and so the boss in charge, the ringleader, he's, he's gotta run and take care of the animals, so he looks at one of his helpers, the clown, and he goes, go to town and get help. The clown was in full getup, but he runs to town as fast as he can. He's got big shoes, red nose. It's difficult for him to run, but it's so important because he's got to save the circus that's on fire. He gets to town, and he yells as loud as he can through the town center, There's a fire! And everyone looks at him, and everyone sees this clown and clown getup and the big shoes and the red nose yelling, and they all start laughing. They all think this is a joke. This is some act that they're doing to get me to come to the circus. How ridiculous and funny is that? And they just laugh and laugh. And as they laugh at him, he screams even louder. He gets even more worked up. No, there's a fire. There's a fire, everyone. And he starts crying at one point. And then he starts getting angry. And everything he does just makes them laugh even harder. They are not understanding it at all. In fact, this ends up being the most laughs he will ever get as a clown. This is his best performance. And all the while, the circus burns. Wow, what a what a dark teaser! Wow, you can set that up, right? 
we will explain that at the end. This um, this episode, man, Kierkegaard, I I I didn't know most of this stuff. In fact, uh, some of it's kind of frustrating. Some of it's kind of confusing. Um, Kierkegaard is definitely one of the most difficult people we have ever tried to understand on this show. I've done, we're on episode 83, 84. This is one of the toughest biographies I think we've had to write yet because he is just a man that has, there's just a lot to try to figure out with him. There's a lot. And once you get into, again, Troy and I are not philosophers, um, but once you get into that deep philosophy stuff, it's a bit of a brain exercise to to wrap your head around. And this, we do actually, I say this later on, but we do want to, look, this is not us saying Kierkegaard's safe, go read and listen and do all his works. We at Revive Thoughts do not endorse every single person we have on for sure. No, yeah. I mean, but he is another person that even though he doesn't have quite everything right, uh, there is some incredible things to learn from him and from the talents that he had. Born in 1813, his father had been a shepherd boy growing up, and he hated that work. He famously, his father once told his son that he cursed God for the work that he did, for that work of being a shepherd. And after that, life got better for him. He became a successful businessman in Copenhagen, and shortly after that cursing of God, he married. But that wife that he married soon died shortly after, and his father would then end up marrying the servant girl. His father and the servant girl would end up being his parents. And this may seem like it has nothing to do with Kierkegaard, but it actually does because his father became successful, but he saw that success as a miserable thing. He thought that God had him under a curse somehow and that the success was part of God's revenge upon him. He lost his first wife and five out of the next seven children that he had would die, Kierkegaard being one of only two that survived. So his father cursed God and then thought that God had cursed the family back. And this was the culture that Soren Kierkegaard grew up in and believed. It's kind of an odd concept for us to think about in today in America, but Kierkegaard wrote about this frequently. The effects and power that believing your family was cursed had on you as you grew up. Kierkegaard would talk about struggling with deep depression that he inherited from his father, and he even broke off a marriage because he assumed he would die shortly after the marriage, and he didn't want to transfer the curse onto his wife. Yeah, so if you think that the curse was like, oh, he didn't really take it serious. I mean, he broke off a marriage that, with a woman that he would write about pretty thoroughly saying he loved her, but he couldn't bring her into this line of the curse. This engagement breakoff also happened around the same time that his dad would end up dying. Um, now, he deeply loved this woman, and this whole loss of his dad giving up the, the marriage was very hard on him. Uh, He started writing pretty early, even before he'd really graduated college with the master's and all the things that he'd end up having degrees-wise. And he also started preaching a little bit around this time, too. Now, many philosophers and theologians have analyzed to death his journals and his writings. And just, we're going to throw it out there, one of the things that he was criticized for, he has a journal entry where it sounds very universalist, where he said, you know what, I think all of us secretly someday are going to be saved and go to heaven Uh, And some people point to that and say, see, we can't trust him. He's a universalist. He also has a lot of of writings about uh, how he thinks that people are going to be punished and how it's all very real and how people aren't ready for it. This man is in a lot of ways a man of contradictions, and that's just one of the reasons why it was extremely hard to study him. And because a lot of philosophers have tried to study and figure him out too, everyone kind of has an opinion of him. We, uh, I said it before, but we just wanted one more time and point out that we don't endorse everything on him. Um, we, we know we've had people on that we don't fully endorse. Johann Tyler, Balthazar Hubmeyer, John Wesley, John Calvin. These are all great men to some and to some others. These are all men with big issues and problematic teachings. That does not mean that we can't learn and listen to their sermons and get something from it. And I know we're putting a lot of prep up here, but I just, I know with this person, there are going to be people who go, <laughs> I just think you shouldn't have done this episode. And I hear you listen to the sermon. And when you get to the end of it, then then let's think about it because I felt the same way when I went through the sermon I had to admit I was like this is actually there's a lot of good stuff here and I think maybe I had kind of prejudged him a little bit too harshly yeah Kierkegaard uh he so he started to write and he started to publish and he had an idea called godly deception he wanted 
to write philosophy that would tackle the issues of philosopher and to a degree tear down the ideas that were being thrown around in the 1800s. He believed that many of the works that people wrote in those days were very narcissistic. And so because of this, he wrote under a pseudonym. Yeah, not only did he write under a pseudonym, he actually, he actually wrote a review also under a pseudonym commenting on the fakeness of him and being like, one thing I want to point out is it really doesn't matter who wrote this. Like, that's not the most important part. I think we can all agree the most important part is the content, which I think is super funny. Like, he's he's fake pretending to fake comment on his own thing to try to throw the people off. Like, don't worry about who wrote this. It's just, (laughs) he was a unique guy. Yeah, it didn't work in in the long term. People eventually found out who he was, but his philosophy work became far more famous and well-known than the Christian works that were being attached to his name. He did write and he preached and taught many Christian discourses. He's even quoted as saying that all writing should be uplifting and edifying for the church. He was deeply concerned, though, about how one became a Christian in a kingdom that was called Christendom. So for Kierkegaard, he saw that there were tons of people who called themselves Christians because they were born in Denmark in the 1800s. But he did not think that they personally knew God or had any relationship with God at all. That, in fact, that they seemed to do more evil because of how unaware of their need for God there were. So he wanted to attack the philosophers with no name attached to him to avoid any ego. And he wanted to preach and teach truth with his name attached to it to the church to get them to not say, just because you're born in Denmark does not make you a Christian. And he, he really wanted to separate Christianity from the national spotlight and from the governance and really get it down to that personal relationship level. One of his most important works discussed self-deception. He believed one of the greatest problems people had was that they could deceive themselves. His dad once thought he was cursed, and he lived his life under this idea that he was cursed. Kierkegaard realized you can be forgiven, and that he actually was forgiven by God, and that he wasn't under some curse, and that this was not how he should live his life. But when he looked around him with these new eyes, he saw too many other people who believed different lies about themselves, and that were completely deceived into living things. And one of those lies that scared him the most was how many people believed they were Christians, even though they had never had any kind of personal experience with God. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, but there's a problem with these ideas from Kierkegaard. On one hand, he's basically saying the morality and social conventions don't matter if you don't have a relationship of some kind with the real God. Many thought he was driving people back to a more genuine form of Christianity, one that transcended national lines and ideas. But on the other hand, he didn't tend to promote direct teaching, and he thought that each person needed to have a relationship with God on their own terms. And this kind of takes away a lot of, you know, when James talks about faith having works, there, there's a result of us being a believers um, that results in how we live and the actions that we take that uh, didn't seem to be a huge concern to Kierkegaard. But through this whole backstory, we're trying to keep it in the context of it being the 1800s. Philosophy was completely giving up on God all over. It was the age of science, right? You had Darwin and evolution. The world was making room for a an existence that did not include God. And Kierkegaard was trying, standing in the middle of this, trying to point people back to God, despite all the reasons people were coming up with not to believe in him. 
Uh, we don't say this to excuse this bad theology, and to be honest, we've really only scratched the surface. There is so much more we could do. I think it could take PhD-level courses to fully even have an idea of what this man believed, especially because he seemed to kind of go back and forth on things a lot. Hopefully, we can dig more into him in maybe a future episode, but I want to get back to that story in the beginning. You remember that story about the clown and everything? What Kierkegaard was saying with that story is he said the priests and the preachers, the church, are that clown. They dress up in these get-ups and they go through these rituals and they put this big show on, but they weren't actually helping people see the truth, that the circus was on fire, that people were in trouble and they were in danger and they had to know God, but they couldn't hear the truth because when they went to the Christians and they went to the church, they had become so poor at doing their job that they looked like clowns trying to relate to people. Kierkegaard wasn't saying this as an atheist. He was saying this as a fellow believer trying to wake people up that we're losing them. We're losing them. We've got to do something. Kierkegaard was attempting to get to Christians to get them to go back to their roots of how they view God. Listen to the sermon about the unchangeableness of God. You hear in a in a lot of ways a calling back to the old ways of doing church and theology in this sermon because this idea of God never changing is something that's very deeply rooted in the old church history way of looking at God. Um, and you can see how just through this one attribute of God, his unchanging nature, Kierkegaard really took this seriously. I wonder if in some ways we should think more about this aspect of God for our own lives in modern day. The Epistle of James 1, 7-12 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom can be no variation nor shadow that is cast by change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You know this, my beloved brethren, but let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting away all filthiness and overflowing wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. My hearer, you have listened to the reading of the text. How often do we seem to turn our thoughts in the opposite direction of the text? To the simple and temporal and earthly things. To the changeableness of men. How depressing and wearisome it is to the spirit that all things are corruptible, that men are changeable. My hearer, you and I change. How sad that the change is so often for the worse. It is a poor human consolation, yet it is a consolation that there is still another change to which the changeable is subject, and that is that it will all come to an end someday. And yet, if we were to speak in this manner, especially with such a spirit of dejection, without a spirit of earnestness, then we would not only fail to keep close to the text, but we would depart from it. Even worse, we would be guilty of altering it. For the text speaks of the opposite, of the unchangeableness of God. The spirit of the text is unmixed, joy and gladness. The words of the apostle, coming as though they were from the lofty silences of the highest mountain peaks, are uplifted above the mutabilities of this earthly life. He speaks of the unchangeableness of God and of nothing else. He speaks of a father of lights who dwells above, with whom there is no change, not even the shadow of any change. He speaks of good and perfect gifts that come to us from above, from this father, who as the father of lights or light is infinitely well equipped to make sure that what comes from him is really a good and perfect gift. And as a father, he has no other ambition than to send good and perfect gifts. And therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, not swift to listen to all sorts of gossip, but swift to direct his attention upward from where we hear only good news. And let him be slow to speak, for our ordinary human talk, and especially the things that first come out of our mouth, usually serves to make the good and perfect gifts less good and less perfect. Let him be slow to anger. When the gifts do not seem to us good and perfect, then we become angry, and so cause that which was good and perfect and intended for our welfare to become, by our own fault, hazardous to us. This is what the wrath of man is able to accomplish. So the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, put aside all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness. When we cleanse and decorate the house and get dressed up, festively awaiting a visit, so that we may worthily receive the good and perfect gifts, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, with meekness. In truth, if it were not the apostle speaking, and we had not followed the instruction to be slow to speak and slow to anger, we might be tempted to say, this is a very strange thing to say. Are we then fools that we need to be told to be meek when hearing from the one who desires only our welfare? He is the father of lights, but we have to be reminded to be meek when hearing from him and not quick to speak or anger. It is as if it were meant to mock us, to make use of the word meekness here. For suppose someone were about to strike me unjustly, and another stood by and said admonishingly, Try to endure this treatment with meekness. Well, that would be a bold statement. But imagine the friendliest of beings, one who is love itself. He has selected a gift for me, and the gift is good and perfect as love itself is. He comes to me and offers to give this gift to me, and then another man stands by and says admonishingly, See that you accept this treatment meekly. And yet, so it is with us human beings. A pagan, a simple sage of antiquity, once complained that whenever he offered to take away from a man some problem, so as to help him to have better insight, he had often experienced that the other person became so angry that he would bite him if he could. Ah, but think of what God has had to endure these six thousand years. He endures from morning until night, from each of mankind's many millions. For we are sometimes most angry when he most intends for our own good. If we men truly understood what was best for our welfare, and in the deepest sense truly desired our own good, then there would be no need to admonish us to be meek in connection to these things. But we human beings, and who has not verified this in his own experiences, are in our relationship to God as children, and here there is a need of a reminder to be meek in connection with our reception of the good and the perfect. The merely human tendency, as paganism shows us, is to speak less about God, and to speak almost exclusively and with sadness about the changing of human affairs. The apostle, on the other hand, desires only and alone to speak of God's unchangeableness. For him, the thought of God's unchangeableness is one of pure and unmixed comfort, peace, joy, and happiness. And this is indeed eternally true. But let us not forget that the Apostle's joy has its explanation in the fact that the Apostle is the Apostle. That he has already long since wholly yielded himself in unconditional obedience to God's unchangeableness. He does not stand at the beginning, but rather at the end of the path, that narrow but good way which he had chosen in renunciation of everything, pursuing it wholeheartedly and without a backward look, rushing forward towards eternity with stronger and ever stronger strides, but we, on the contrary, who are still beginners and subject to discipline, for us the unchangeableness of God must have also another aspect. And if we forget this, we readily run in danger of taking the lofty peace of the Apostle in vain. Let us then speak, if possible, to the good, both of a wholesome fear and a genuine peace of you, God is unchangeable. In his omnipotence, he created this visible world and made himself invisible. He clothed himself in the visible world as in a garment. He changes it as one who changes clothes, himself unchanged. So it is in the world of sensible things. In the world of events, he is present everywhere, in every moment. In a truer sense than we can say of the most watchful human justice that he is present everywhere, God is omnipresent. Although never seen by any mortal, he is present everywhere. In the smallest event, as well as in the greatest. In that which can scarcely be called an event. In the death of a sparrow, and in the birth of the Savior of all mankind. In each moment, every actuality is a possibility in his almighty hand. He holds all in readiness, in every instant prepared to change everything, the opinions of men, their judgments, 
human greatness, and human abasement. He changes all while himself is unchanged. When everything seems stable, for it is only an appearance that the external world is for a time unchanged, in reality it is always in flux, and in the overturn of all things he remains equally unchanged. No change touches him, not even the shadow of a change. In unaltered clearness he, the Father of lights, remains eternally unchanged. And this is precisely why he is unchanged, because he is pure light, a clarity which shows no trace of dimness, and which no dimness can come near. With us men it is not like this. We are not in this manner clear, and precisely for this reason we are subject to change. Now something becomes clearer in us, now something is dimmed and we are changed. Now changes take place about us, and the shadow of these changes glide over us, altering us. We complain of men and their changing ways, and of the changing of all temporal things, but God is unchangeable, and this is our consolation. It is a deeply comforting thought. But first and foremost, do you also have an understanding with God? Do you earnestly consider and sincerely strive to understand what God's will is for you may be? Or do you live your life in such a fashion that this thought has never so much as entered your mind? How terrifying, then, that he is eternally unchangeable! For with this immutable will you must nevertheless, sometime, sooner or later, come into collision. This immutable will, which desired that you should consider these things because it desired for your welfare. This immutable will, which can only crush you if you collide with it. In the second place, you who have some degree of understanding with God, do you have a good understanding with Him? Is your will unconditionally His will? Your wishes, each one of them, His commandments? Your thoughts, first and last, His thoughts? If not, then how terrifying that God is unchangeable, everlastingly, eternally unchangeable. Consider what it means to be at odds with a merely human being. But maybe you are their better and you tell yourself that the other will eventually be compelled to change his attitude. But now, if he happens to be stronger or more powerful, well, perhaps you think you will have more endurance. But suppose it is an entire generation of people with whom you are at odds, and yet in that case, maybe you say to yourself, Seventy years is not eternity. I can endure their hate. But when the will is that of one eternally unchangeable, if you are at odds with this, it means for all eternity. How terrifying! Imagine a traveler. He has been brought to a standstill at the foot of a mountain. A tremendous, impassable one. It is this mountain. But no, it is not his destiny to cross it, even though he has set his heart upon the crossing. For his wishes, his longings, his desires, his very soul are already on the other side. It only remains for him to follow physically to the other side. Imagine him coming to be seventy years old, but the mountain stands there still unchanged, impassable. Let him become twice seventy years old, but the mountain stands unalterably blocking his way, unchanged, impassable. Under all this he undergoes changes. He dies away from his longings, his wishes, his desires. He now scarcely recognizes himself, and so a new generation finds him altered, sitting at the foot of the mountain, which still stands there unchanged, impassable. Suppose it to have happened a thousand years ago. The altered traveler is long since dead, and only a legend keeps his memory alive. It is the only thing that remains, except, of course, the mountain, unchanged, impassable. And now think of him who is eternally unchangeable, for whom a thousand years are but as one day. Ah, even this is too much to say. They are for him as one instant, as if they did not even exist. Consider then if you have in the most distant manner a will to walk a different path than that which he wills for you, how terrifying! True enough, if your will and if my will, if the will of all these many thousands happens to be not so entirely in harmony with God's will, then things nevertheless take their course as best they may in the hurly-burly of the so-called actual world. It is as if God did not pay any attention. It is as if a just man, if there were such a man, when contemplating this world, 
may be concerned that God does not make himself felt. But do you believe on that account that God has undergone any change? Or is it the fact that God does not seem to make his displeasure with sin known any less a terrifying fact? To me, it does not seem so. Consider this, and then tell me which is the more terrible. The picture of one who is infinitely the stronger, who grows tired of letting himself be mocked, and rises in his might to crush the wicked? Oh, this is a terrible sight indeed. And we feel its presence when we say that God is not mocked. We point to the times when his annihilating punishments were visited upon the human race. But is this really the most terrifying sight? Is there not a more terrifying one? One infinitely powerful, who eternally unchanged sits quite still and sees everything, without altering a feature, almost as if he did not exist. While all the time wicked men's lies achieve success and power, violence and wrong gain the victory, to such an extent as even to tempt a better man to think that if he hopes to accomplish anything for good, he must in part use these same means. So that it is as if God were being mocked, God the infinitely powerful, the eternally unchangeable, who nonetheless is neither mocked nor changed. Is this not the most terrifying sight? For why do you think he is so quiet? Because he knows with himself that he is eternally unchangeable. Anyone not eternally sure of himself could not keep so still, but would rise and show their power. Only one who is eternally unchanged can be in this manner so still. He gives men time, and he can afford to give them time, since he has eternity. He gives time, and that with careful thought. And then there comes an accounting in eternity, where nothing is forgotten not a single one of the improper words that were spoken. And he is eternally unchanged. And yet, it may also be an expression for his mercy that men are afforded time. Time for conversion and betterment. But how fearful if the time is not used for this purpose. For in that case, the folly and frivolity in us would rather have him straight away ready with his punishment instead of giving men time. Ask one experienced in bringing up children. And in relation to God, we are all more or less as children. Ask one who has had to deal with criminals, and each one of us has at least once in his life gone astray, and goes astray for a longer or a shorter time, at longer or shorter periods of life. Ask and you will find him ready to confirm the idea that for the frivolous, it is a great help when the punishment follows, if possible, instantly upon the transgression. This is so that the memory of the frivolous may acquire the habit of associating the punishment immediately with the guilt. If transgression and punishment were so bound up with one another that, as it is in a double-barreled shotgun, if the pressure on a spring caused the punishment to follow instantly upon the seizure of the forbidden fruit, or immediately upon the commitment of the transgression, then I think that the frivolous would take heed. But the longer the interval between guilt and punishment the greater the temptation to frivolity. As if the punishment might be forgotten, or as if justice itself might alter and acquire different ideas with the passage of time. Or at least it would be so long since the wrong was committed that it would become impossible to make an unaltered presentation of it before the bar of justice. And so the whims of man changes, and by no means for the better. It comes to feel secure, and when it has become secure, it becomes more daring. And so the years pass, punishment is withheld, forgetfulness intervenes, and again the punishment is withheld, but new transgressions do not fail to come. And the old evil becomes still more entrenched. And then finally, all is over. Death rolls down the curtain, and observing all this, there was an eternally unchangeable witness. And the eternally unchangeable one is the one that you must make your reckoning with. In this instant, that the minute hand of time showed seventy years, and the man died, during all that time the clock of eternity has scarcely moved. To such a degree is everything present for the eternal, and for him who is unchangeable. And therefore, whoever you may be, take time to consider what I say to myself, that for God there is nothing significant and nothing insignificant. 
that in a certain sense the significant is for him insignificant, and in another sense even the least significant is for him infinitely significant. If then your will in, is not in harmony with his will, consider that you will never be able to evade him. Be grateful to him if through the use of mildness or severity he teaches you to bring your will into agreement with his. For how fearful is it if he makes no move to arrest your course? How fearful if in the case of any human being it comes to pass that a person almost defiantly relies either upon the notion that God does not exist or upon his having changed his mind, or even upon his being too great to take note of what we call the little things. For the truth is that God both exists and is eternally unchangeable, and his infinite greatness consists precisely in his seeing even the least of things, and remembering even the least thing. Yes, and if you do not will as he wills, that he remembers it unchanged for an eternity. There is so much fear and trembling for us frivolous and inconstant human beings in this thought of God's unchangeableness. Oh, consider it well. Whether God makes himself immediately felt or not, he is eternally unchangeable. So consider this. If, as we say, we have any debt outstanding with him, he is unchangeable. You have perhaps promised him something, obligated yourself in a sacred pledge. But in the course of time you have undergone a change, and now you rarely think of God. Now that you have grown older, have you perhaps found more important things to think about? Or perhaps you now have different notions about God, and think that he does not concern himself with the small stuff of your life? You regard such beliefs as childishness. In any case, you have just about forgotten what you promised him, and thereupon you have proceeded to forget that you promised him anything. And finally, you have forgotten it. Forgotten, yes. Forgotten that he forgets nothing, since he is eternally unchangeable. Forgotten that it is precisely the inverted childishness of mature years to imagine that anything is insignificant for God, or that God forgets anything, he who is eternally unchangeable. In human relationships, we so often complain of inconsistency. One party accuses the other of having changed. But even in the relationship between a man and man, it is sometimes the case that the constancy of one party may come to seem like a tormenting affliction for the other. A man may, for example, have talked to another person about himself. What he said may have been merely a little childish, even pardonably so. But perhaps, too, the matter was more serious than this. The poor, foolish, vain heart was tempted to speak in lofty tones of future plans, of a business dream, or of an invention that he was definitely going to build. The other man listened calmly, did not even smile, or interrupt the speech. He let him speak on to the end, listened, and kept silent. Only he promised, as he was asked to do, not to forget what had been said. Then some time elapsed, and the first man had long since forgotten all of his chatter. Only the other had not forgotten. Yes, let us suppose something still stranger. He had permitted himself to be moved inwardly by the thoughts that the first man had expressed under the influence of his mood, when he poured out some momentary dreams. He had sincerely shaped his life in accordance with these ideas. What torment would this unchanged remembrance be to the one who showed only too clearly that he had retained his memory every last detail of what had been said in that moment? And now consider him who is eternally unchangeable, and this human heart. Oh, this human heart, what is not hidden in your secret recesses, unknown to others, and that is the least of it, but sometimes it is almost unknown to the individual himself. When a man has lived a few years, it is almost as if it were a graveyard, this human heart. There they lie, buried in forgetfulness, promises, intentions, resolutions, entire plans and fragments of plans, and God knows what else. Yes, so say we men, for we rarely think about what we say. We say, there lies God knows what. And this we say half in a spirit of vanity and half weary of life. And it is so fearfully true that God does know what to the last detail, knows what you have forgotten, knows what for your recollection has suffered alterations. He knows it all unchanged. 
He does not remember it merely as having happened some time ago. No, he remembers it as if it were today. He knows whether, in connection with any of these wishes, intentions, resolutions, something so to speak was said to him about it, he is eternally unchanged and eternally unchangeable. Oh, if the remembrance that another human being carries about with him may seem burdensome to you, then remind yourself that this remembrance is, after all, not always so entirely trustworthy. And in any case, it cannot endure for an eternity. Some time I may expect to be freed from this other man and his memory, but an omniscient witness and an eternally unchangeable memory, one from which you can never free yourself for all eternity, that is to be feared. No, in a manner eternally unchanged, everything is for God eternally present, always equally before him, no shadow of variation, neither that of morning nor of evening, neither that of youth nor of old age, neither that of forgetfulness nor of excuse changes him. For him there is no shadow. If we human beings are mere shadows, as is sometimes said, he is eternal clearness in eternal unchangeableness. If we are shadows that glide away, my soul look well to yourself, for whether you will it or not, you will go to meet eternity, and to meet him, and he is eternal clearness. Here it is not so much that he keeps a reckoning, as that he himself is the reckoning. It is said that we must render up an account, as if we perhaps had a long time to prepare for it, and also perhaps as if it were likely to be cluttered up with such an enormous mass of detail as to make it impossible to get the reckoning finished. O oh, my soul, the account is every moment complete. For the unchangeable clearness of God is the reckoning, complete to the last detail, preserved by him who is eternally unchangeable. And who has forgotten none of the things that I have forgotten? And who does not, as I do, remember some things differently than they really were? There is sheer fear and trembling in this thought of the unchangeableness of God, almost as if it were far, far beyond the power of any human beings to sustain a relationship to such an unchangeable power. Yes, as if this thought must drive a man to such unrest and anxiety of mind as to bring him to the verge of despair. But then, it is also true that there is rest and happiness in this thought. It is really true that when wearied with all this human inconsistency, this temporal and earthly changeability, and wearied also of our own inability, you might wish to find a place where rest may be found for your weary head, for your weary thoughts and your weary spirit, so that you might find rest and find complete relief. Oh, in the unchangeableness of God there is rest. When you therefore permit this unchangeableness to serve you according to His will, for your own welfare, that of your eternal welfare. When you submit yourself to discipline, so that your selfish will dies away, and the sooner the better, and there is no help for it, you must be willing or resisting. For think how vain it is for your will to be at odds with an eternal God. When you submit to be disciplined by his unchangeable will, so that you renounce your inconsistency and caprice and self-will, then you will steadily rest more and more securely and more and more blessedly in the unchangeableness of God. For that thought of God's unchangeableness is a blessed thought. Who can doubt it? But be sure that you become such that you can rest happily in this immutability. He says, My home is eternally secure. I rest in the unchangeableness of God. There is a rest that no one can disturb for you except yourself, and you would freely rest in God. And as for the rest, let all things change as they do. If the scene of your activity is on a larger stage, you will experience the mutability of all things in greater measure. But even on a lesser stage, or on the smallest stage of all, you will still experience the same, perhaps quite as painfully. You will learn how men change how you yourself change. Sometimes it will even seem to you as if God himself changed, but this is really your understanding of God coming to light. On this subject of the mutability of all things, one older than I would be able to speak in better fashion, while perhaps 
what I could say might seem to someone very young as if it were new. But this we will not further explain, leaving it rather for the many experiences of life to unfold for each one in particular. In the manner intended specifically for him, that which all other men have experienced before him. Sometimes the changes will be such as to call to mind the saying that variety is a pleasure, an indescribable pleasure. There will also come times when you will have occasion to discover for yourself a saying which the language has suppressed, and you will say to yourself, change is not pleasant. How could I ever have said that variety is pleasure? When this experience comes to you, you will have a special occasion, though you will surely not forget this in the first case either, to seek him who is unchangeable. My listener, this hour is coming to an end, and so is our time together. Unless you will it otherwise, this hour and its speech will soon be forgotten. And unless you will to do otherwise, the thought of God's unchangeableness will also soon be forgotten in the midst of life's changes. But for this, God will surely not be responsible. But if you do not make yourself guilty of forgetfulness with respect to it, you will in this thought have found a sufficiency for your entire life, yes, for eternity. Imagine a solitary traveler, maybe a desert wanderer, almost burned by the heat of the sun, languishing with thirst, but he finds a spring. Oh, refreshing coolness! Now God be praised, he says, and yet it was merely a spring he found. God be praised, I have found God, now I am well provided for. Your faithful coolness, O oh beloved wellspring, is not subject to any change. In the cold of winter, if winter visited this awful place, you would not become colder, but would preserve the same coolness unchanged. And for the waters of the spring do not freeze. In the midday heat of the summer sun you preserve precisely the same coolness, for the waters of the spring do not become lukewarm. There is nothing untrue in what he says, no false exaggeration in his eulogy. However, the life of our wanderer took a turn different than he had thought. He lost touch with the spring and wept astray in the wide world. Many years later he returned to the same place. His thought first was of the spring, but it was not there. It had run dry. For a moment he stood silent in grief. Then he gathered himself together and said, No, I will not retract a single word of all that I said in your praise. It was all true. And if I praised your refreshing coolness while you were still in being, O oh, beloved wellspring, let me also praise it when you have vanished, in order that there may be some proof of unchangeableness in a human heart. Nor can I say that you had deceived me. Had I found you, I am convinced that your coolness would have been quite unchanged, and more you had not promised. But you, O oh God, who are unchangeable, you are always to be found, and always to be found unchanged. Whether in life or in death, no one journeys so far away that you are not to be found by him, that you are not there. You who are everywhere, it is not so with the wellsprings of earth, for they are to be found only in special places. And besides, overwhelming security, you do not remain like the spring in a single place but you follow the traveler on his way. Ah, and no one ever wanders so far astray that he cannot find the way back to you. You, who are not merely a spring that may be found, how poor and inadequate a description of what you are, but rather as a spring that itself seeks out the thirsty traveler. Who has ever heard of the like of such a spring? So you are, unchangeably, always, and everywhere, to be found. And whenever any human being comes to you, of whatever age, at whatever time of the day, in whatever state, if he comes in sincerity, he will always find your love equally warm, like the spring's unchanged coolness, O oh, you who are unchangeable. Amen. You listen to the sermon and you remember that this sermon about the unchangeableness of God is coming from the man who is known as the father of existentialism. I think 
the fact that God does not change has been forgotten. And just this idea that God never forgets your sin, he knows everything you've ever done, just as if it happened to you right then. It has never left his mind. He recalls it. He has, there's no excuse, no softening of time. The things that we humans do to forget our tragedies, he does not do. Do you believe that? And then if you do, how amazing is that such a God with crystal clear memory has chosen to forgive us through his son? Now, in this episode, we, we look, we know Kierkegaard's kind of a guy that is not, um, you know, he's not looked up to. You don't see his poster hanging up and his quotes going around about God a lot. And we understand that. Look, we, Joel and I kind of wrestled with this a bit ourselves. Like, should we do this episode? Is this episode okay? What are you guys going to think? But we're just going to, you know, I want to lay the cards on the table. We trust you guys. If you don't like this sermon, that's okay. You know there's going to be one next week. We do not expect all these guys to be perfect. We don't think you could get all 80-something speakers we've had on the show into a room to agree with each other. In fact, they probably would have all beaten each other up by the end of it. And so we just want to thank you guys as an audience. It would be really easy for somebody to come on here and go, I didn't like that they had so-and-so on one star. This show is no good. But you have been a really amazing audience, and you have not done that to us ever. You've walked through this with us. We've gotten tweets and replies. Sometimes we're like, I don't know if I agree with everything on that last sermon, guys, but I do appreciate that you guys put it out there. That's kind of how we want to do. We're trying to introduce you to these great church people of history and some of them come with a lot of scars and issues we're not trying to give you our opinions we want you guys to think and do this yourself we really do appreciate that and appreciate going on this journey kind of with you where we figure out these guys and learn there's more to them than i originally thought a lot of times Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Josiah Kerrigan. Please check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this sermon and all of the sermons we do here on Revive Thoughts. We want to tell you guys about Revived Radio. Revived Radio is a new podcast here from Rise Studios. It is just amazing what we're taking is those old radio sermons those people that used to literally this is your grandma's preaching that she would turn on the radio with the big dial turn to one of the stations and hear one of these scratchy old voices coming through speaking truth this is that sermon we've run it through some tech to kind of make it sound a little bit better a little bit cleaned up and just like with revive thoughts we're going to give you the backstories of these preachers even people who used to listen to these old preachers don't actually often know the backstories of these men already we've been blown away by some of the stories and things we've heard and things these men have lived through uh these sermons are really really good you know we always say a lot of the best preachers never made to radio these are the guys who canceled these written sermons from revive thoughts but these guys are also getting forgotten and they are amazing just absolute dynamite preachers there you can find revived radio on your podcast app of choice just search for revived radio this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.